Good afternoon. Good afternoon and welcome. Welcome to a public meeting of the Evangelical Union here at Sydney University. As you might have gathered, my name is not Byron Smith, but in fact it's Phil Ng, and I'm the new student president of the EU. Uh, as most of you are aware, we had the AGM on Monday night, uh, and those are the new executive members of the EU, who I'm sure you can all meet at some point later. Uh, now, as I'm sure most of you, if not all of you, are aware um, of the events that have been going on in America, uh, with two terrorist planes flying into the World Trade Center, uh, and the World Trade Center collapsing, and another plane flying into the Pentagon, uh, possibly causing um, lots of casualties, as well as injuries, as well as associated problems with that. And so I'd like to invite you uh, to pray with me now uh, for those in America uh, and those who will be suffering from this tragedy. So let's pray. Gracious Father, you are the mighty God, the compassionate God. And so, Father, when we see great tragedy, we know that you feel it all the more. Father, we pray for those families of those people who have been killed. Uh, we pray that you would comfort them and raise up people to comfort them. We pray for the governments that are involved. We pray that there would be peace amongst the nations, especially peace amongst um, those within the American government, uh, as well as um, other governments which are involved. Gracious Lord, we pray that you would give skill uh, and wisdom to the rescuers and the medical staff who will attend their casualties. We pray for them. Uh, that you would uphold them in this tragedy. And Father, we pray that all the more that uh, your day, uh, the day of your return would come and so that there would be no more suffering and no more evil in this world. And it's in Christ's name that we pray. Amen. Uh, we're going to hear from Dave Starling today, uh, the minister at Peterson Baptist. Uh, but before we do, John Gerber is going to come up and read for us from 1 Corinthians 9. So if you'd like to take your Bibles out. Uh, for those that don't have Bibles, it might be good if you share. Um, so have a look around, check out who's available who doesn't have Bibles. 1 Corinthians chapter 9. Give you a moment to turn it up. Okay, 1 Corinthians chapter 9. Am I not free? Am I not an apostle? Have I not seen Jesus our Lord? Are you not the result of my work in the Lord? Even though I may not be an apostle to others, surely I am to you, for you are the seal of my apostleship in the Lord. This is my defence to those who sit in judgment on me. Don't we have the right to food and drink? Don't we have the right to take a believing wife along with us, as do the other apostles and the Lord's brothers and Cephas? Or is it only I and Barnabas who must work for a living? Who serves as a soldier at his own expense? Who plants a vineyard and does not eat of its grapes? Who tends a flock and does not drink of the milk? Do I say this merely from a human point of view? For it is written in the law of Moses, do not muzzle an ox while it is treading out the grain. Is it about oxen that God is concerned? Surely he says this for us, doesn't he? Yes, this was written for us, because when the plowman plows and the thresher threshes, they ought to do so in the hope of sharing in the harvest. If we have sown spiritual seed among you, is it too much if we reap a material harvest from you? If others have this right of support from you, shouldn't we have it all the more? 
But we did not use this right. On the contrary, we put up with anything rather than hinder the gospel of Christ. Don't you know that those who work in the temple get their food from the temple, and those who serve at the altar share in what is offered on the altar? In the same way, the Lord has commanded that those who preach the gospel should receive their living from the gospel. But I have not used any of these rights, and I am not writing this in the hope that you will do such things for me. I would rather die than have anyone deprive me of this boast. Yet when I preach the gospel, I cannot boast, for I am compelled to preach. Woe to me if I do not preach the gospel. If I preach voluntarily, I have a reward. If not voluntarily, I am simply discharging the trust committed to me. What then is my reward? Just this, that in preaching the gospel I may offer it free of charge, and so not make use of my rights in preaching it. Though I am free and belong to no man, I make myself a slave to everyone, to win as many as possible. To the Jews I became like a Jew, to win the Jews. To those under the law I became like one under the law, though I myself am not under the law, so as to win those under the law. To those not having the law, I became like one not having the law, though I am not free from God's law, but am under Christ's law, so as to win those not having the law. To the weak I became weak, to win the weak. I have become all things to all men, so that by all possible means I might save some. I do all this for the sake of the gospel, that I may share in its blessings. Do you not know that in a race all the runners run, but only one gets the prize? Run in such a way as to get the prize. Everyone who competes in the games goes into strict training. They do it to get a crown that will not last, but we do it to get a crown that will last forever. Therefore, I do not run like a man running aimlessly. I do not fight like a man beating the air. No, I beat my body and make it my slave so that after I have finished, so that after I have preached to others, I myself will not be disqualified for the prize. Father, we pray that you would help us as we turn our, our thoughts and our attention to this part of your word. Uh, help us to hear clearly what you say to us and help us to be prepared to change in response to what we hear. And we ask this for Jesus' sake and, his, and in his name. Amen. It seems impossible on a day like today uh, not to begin by saying something about the tragedy that was played out uh, in America overnight. Uh, but the story that I had prepared uh, to begin today's talk with concerns a very different American tragedy. It was a tragedy that took the lives not of tens of thousands, but of just one little girl. And she was a victim not of international terrorism, but of forces much closer to the heart of the American way of life. It was a story that was played out five years ago on the 11th of April 1996, when little seven-year-old aeroplane pilot Jessica Dubroff took off during a driving sleet storm, trying to fulfil her parents' dream that she would be the youngest ever person to fly across the United States of America. 
Her father was the one who had come up with the idea originally. Her mum too was keen on it. She told reporters that she had made a decision early in Jessica's life never to teach her daughter negative words like risk or danger. The media egged them on at every stage of the journey, taking great delight in this feel-good story about the seven-year-old from Pescadero, California, who was taking her independent spirit to the skies. The ending was as tragic as it was predictable. She took off a little too steeply into the storm, stalled, nosedived, and crashed into the ground. Her mother said that Jessica had a freedom that you can't get by holding her back. One media commentator summed up, she may have lost her life, but she had her freedom. We live in a society, don't we, that places a very high premium on values like independence and choice and freedom. We live in a culture where, for the mainstream of our culture, it matters more to be pro-choice than to be pro-life, for example. We live in a culture where people try to sell us things using that word freedom, uh, everything from mobile phones to MasterCards. There's even a brand of cigarettes called freedom, which I have to say I kind of, kind of find ironic. Why do the advertisers love that word so much? Why do they, they, they know it will, press our, it will push our buttons? Because they know that freedom and choice and independence, the right to make our own decisions and live life our own way, in our own time, under our own flag, that those things are about the highest values of all in our society. We articulate it in a slightly different way from the Americans, but at the end of the day, I think we value it just as much. Christians talk a lot about freedom too, except the kind of thing we mean when we talk about it and the kind of uses that we put it to, both of them are radically different. We saw last week in 1 Corinthians chapter 8, if you were here, the way that the example of Jesus teaches us to use our knowledge and our freedom in the service of love. For those of us who are Christians, to take into consideration the needs and the struggles and the difficulties of our fellow Christians, our brothers and sisters within the community of the church. And Paul in chapter 9 continues this argument that he's developing, uh, discussing those issues of the place of the temple feast and the idol meal uh, in the life of the, uh, the ancient Greek town and the place the Christians should have, the way the Christians should think about those, those meals. But in chapter 9, the scope of the picture becomes wider. And the focus is not just on our fellow believers, but also on the wider community and on the cause of the gospel. And Paul says that we exercise our freedom in love, not just for the sake of our fellow believers, but also for the sake of those around us who are not yet Christian and for the cause of the gospel, for the, the cause of the task of the message about Jesus being taken out to all kinds of people in all parts of the world. But before he gets to that, he takes us on a kind of digression in verses 1 to 23, which is partly an example of the sort of mindset that he's talking about and partly a defence of his very right to speak of it at all. And if we're going to make sense of what Paul says in this chapter, uh, if we're not going to be thrown off balance by the, the sort of language that he used and the force of the rhetoric and the personal tone as he, as he sways straight into this digression in verse 1, Am I not free? Am I not an apostle? If we're not going to be thrown off balance by the rhetoric and the language, we have to read this section first as a defence 
And then secondly, to come back and read it again as an example. Because the language of the chapter and the forcefulness of the argument, I think, makes it very clear that in this chapter, Paul is not just jotting down a few helpful points in response to a polite and earnest inquiry from the Corinthians. They haven't written him a deeply respectful letter saying, Dear Apostle Paul, please tell us what we should think about in these matters. Now, in fact, as, as you see again and again if you read through the letter of 1 Corinthians, he's writing to a church where there are many who don't want to listen to what he has to say, uh, to a church that is, uh, at least amongst the powerful and its leaders, on the attack against him and against his message. In particular, judging from what he writes in this chapter, uh, there are two main accusations that he's responding to, two main charges that the Corinthians have against the Apostle Paul. We'll look at them one at a time. The first is a criticism of Paul's practice of working with his hands to support himself as he does his missionary trips, instead of accepting patronage from wealthy sponsors. Behind that criticism is a, is a question about Paul's apostleship. In the minds of some of the Corinthians, a true apostle didn't have to work at a day job on the side in order to pay the bills. If he was a genuine apostle, if he was the real thing, if he was a professional, then he wouldn't need to get his hands dirty working a trade during the day in order to do his apostle work at night. And if Paul was just a part-time preacher, if he wasn't even good enough and slick enough and important enough to command a salary, then why did they need to listen to what he had to say about whether to go to the idol feasts or not, or about any other matter? for that matter. That is the issue that is at stake. And Paul responds, he comes out swinging, doesn't he, in the first few verses of the chapter, with a vigorous kind of defence of his rights as an apostle. Verse 1, Paul writes, Am I not free? Am I not an apostle? Have I not seen Jesus our Lord? Are you not my work in the Lord? If I am not an apostle to others, at least I am to you, for you are the seal of my apostleship in the Lord. What makes Paul an apostle? Well, first and foremost, he says, it is that he has seen the risen Jesus. Have I not seen the Lord, he says. He's a witness of the resurrection. He met Jesus on the road to Damascus. And secondly, he's an apostle because of the commission that Jesus gave him to take the message about Jesus and his resurrection uh, to the nations, to the Gentiles. And in that respect, he says to the church in Corinth, your very existence as a church is a kind of proof and seal of my apostleship. If Paul had not been sent out by Jesus as an apostle to the Gentiles, there would have been no church at all in Corinth. And then in verse 3 and following, you'll see Paul gives a string of, of reasons to make it clear that the reason why he refused to fund his mission by the patronage of the rich, why he refused to fund his mission by charging speakers' fees, like most teachers of the ancient world, the reason why he didn't accept that kind of money was not because he didn't have a right to it, not because he was some kind of cheap amateur imitation of an apostle, but because he had deliberately chosen not to make use of his right to that sort of support, lest that be a hindrance to the cause of the gospel. And so he continues, verse 12, If others share this rightful claim on you, do we not still more? Nevertheless, we have not made use of this right, but we endure anything rather than put an obstacle in the way of the gospel of Christ. 
Do you not know that those who are employed in the temple service get their food from the temple, and that those who serve at the altar share in what is sacrificed on the altar? In the same way, the Lord commanded that those who proclaim the gospel should get their living by the gospel. But I have not made use of any of these rights. That is Paul's answer to the first of those accusations. The accusation that his servile and demeaning behaviour in working with his hands at a trade to pay the bills, that that behaviour cast a question over whether he could be taken seriously as an apostle. He says, By no means did I lack the right to such support, but I laid aside that right for the sake of others and the sake of the gospel. Well, the second accusation isn't so much to do with servility as it is to do with inconsistency. Paul has been writing to the Corinthians, uh, as we saw last week, about questions like whether they should go to the idol feast, whether they should participate in the pagan culture around them by eating in the meals at the pagan temples, whether they should purchase meat from the markets that might have been sacrificed to idols, whether they should eat food with their pagan friends, all those kind of issues about their interaction with the pagan world. But the Corinthians say in response, how can we take you, Paul, seriously on those kind of issues when you are so inconsistent yourself? One moment you're kosher, next moment you're you're tucking into a pork chop. One moment you're acting like the most orthodox of Jews, next time we meet you, you're completely Gentile. How can we take what you write on these things of all matters seriously when you chop and change so much yourself? And Paul says, yes, that is exactly how I am. And I am that way not because of some kind of weird split personality inside me, not because I'm some kind of chameleon that just changes its colour depending on its environment, not because I just want to to be like whoever I'm around, but because I have deliberately chosen to be as flexible as I can for the sake of the gospel. Which leads us on to the fact that these verses, these same verses we've just read, are there not just as a defence, but also as an example. Because that is the other reason that Paul writes about himself so much in this chapter. He's writing in order to point point the Corinthians to his behaviour as a kind of concrete illustration of exactly the sort of mindset that he's encouraging them to have as they think about these issues. So let's have a look back at verses 1 to 23, this time not as defence, but as example. In the first place, verses 1 to 18, Paul's example is one of graciousness and self-sacrifice. Why does Paul not make use of his right to be supported as a missionary? Because, verse 18, he is determined to preach the gospel free of charge. He wants his method of operating as a missionary to be a kind of acted parable, an example of the message that he's proclaiming. That is to say, he wants to make it clear for all to see that his message is one about the free grace of God, not about something purchased or earned or paid for, but about something given as a gift. He wants to make it absolutely clear that at the very heart of the Christian faith, the very heart of the faith that you and I believe if we have come to know Jesus, is a gift from God. At the very heart of the Christian faith is the message to you and to me that we could do nothing to earn our acceptance with God that we could do nothing to pay off the debt of sin and of guilt that we have earned by our own misdeeds, by our own rebellion against God. That there is nothing that we could do by religious observance or by moral effort or by pouring out our energies and our prayers that would make us, that would, 
make us good enough to climb the ladder up to God, that we only have a relationship with God because he has climbed down to us and that he has given us his own son on the cross. He said the message that Paul had as he trekked around the Mediterranean was a message that was all about a free and gracious gift of God, an undeserved, unearned gift of salvation. And Paul says, And so I decided that everywhere I could, I would make my method of operating a kind of symbol of the message that I proclaimed. And so when he came to an area to preach the gospel and to plant a church there, when he comes to the area, he decides quite deliberately not to charge a speaker's fee for people to come and pay money to hear this message. And as people come to faith in Christ, he decides quite deliberately not to sign them up, not to sign up the wealthy ones as kind of financial sponsors. You see, he's not buying people into some kind of religious pyramid scheme where you recruit, recruit others and pass up the money up the line to the apostle. Instead, he's spreading the message about a gracious gift from God. He doesn't want his method of operating to create the impression that he's there just to recruit sponsors. Instead, he'd rather work with his hands and make tents, uh, follow the trade that he'd learned as a kid in order to sponsor his own missionary work and make it completely self-supporting. That doesn't mean that he knocks back the gift of every fellow Christian who wants to share in his work. If, you, if you've read the letter to the Philippians, for example, it's a kind of a missionary thank you letter uh, where he writes to the church in Philippi to say, thank you that you shared in my ministry uh, by sending this gift that you've given me to be part of what I'm doing. Uh, thank you that out of the little that you had, you wanted to be part of this work. But when he turned up in a town like Corinth to plant a new church, he wanted to make it absolutely sure that he wasn't turning up to make money out of the people that he was preaching to. All of which meant very real and daily sacrifice for him. It's easy and kind of glib to talk in, um, in the terms of being a tent maker. Uh, it's much harder to actually live it out, to trek from town to town, uh, walking on foot, working long hours through the day, working a trade, in order to do your missionary work at night. It meant going out with things, going, going without things that he was, he was rightly entitled to. But Paul is saying to the Christians, that is exactly how we use our rights and our freedoms as Christians. We use them by laying them down. We use them sacrificially. We hold on to them loosely. We use them as people who have a much bigger commitment to the cause of the gospel of Jesus Christ, to seeing people saved. We use them as people who have a far greater desire to see people one to eternal life in Jesus than to see our own comfort and freedoms and rights respected. An example, firstly, of graciousness and self-sacrifice. And secondly, an example of flexibility and accommodation. Have a look at verse 19. Paul writes, For though I am free with respect to all, I have made myself a slave to all, so that I might win more of them. To the Jews I became as a Jew in order to win Jews. To those under the law I became as one under the law, though I myself am not under the law, so that I might win those under the law. To those outside the law I became as one outside the law, though I am not free from God's law, but am under Christ's law, so that I might win those outside the law. To the weak I became weak, so that I might win the weak. I have become all things to all people, that I might by all possible means save some. 
I do it all for the sake of the gospel, so that I may share in its blessings. Paul's not uh, speaking here about pretending to be something he's not, uh, nor is he talking about having uh, adjustable ethical standards. Uh, He doesn't say, to the promiscuous and greedy, I became promiscuous and greedy in order to win the promiscuous and greedy. What he's talking about is the areas of life in which God's word leaves it open and free for us to decide. The issues that are indifferent issues, according to God's word. And Paul says, in those areas, even in those areas where there are deeply ingrained cultural prejudices and traditions and preferences, even in those areas where I have been brought up to have almost a sense of revulsion and discomfort at doing something, when God's word tells me in those areas that I am free, free from the taboos and the prejudices and the traditions that I was born into and of the world around me, I use that freedom not to vaunt my independence, but to make myself the servant of all. Do you see how it's Paul's very freedom that he has that gives him the flexibility to be completely the servant of all? Because he is not the captive to his own prejudices, taboos, traditions, because he has that flexibility, he uses it not for the sake of his own freedom, but for the sake of the service of others and the cause of the gospel. I remember one occasion back when uh, my wife and I lived up in Springwood in the mountains, uh, when Nicole and I were out uh, door knocking, uh, Jehovah's Witness style, from, you know, from door to door, telling people about Jesus and, and talking to them about our, our church and so on. Uh, one Sunday afternoon, uh, we came to one house where there was this big Greek family uh, who were incredibly hospitable and friendly and uh, urged us to come on in. Uh, before we could say yes or no, they'd actually set places at the table for us uh, and, and put out in front of us um, uh, glasses of their own uh, Greek wine that they had made uh, and bowls of their homemade chicken soup. Uh, now, uh, as a few of you may know, my wife Nicole is a vegetarian and a wine drinker. Uh, and I am uh, a carnivore and a teetotaler. Um, both of us have our, our reasons for, for eating and drinking that way and abstaining in, in that way. Uh, and we both know that those issues, as far as we can see it, are not uh, moral absolutes for either of us. Uh, they're just decisions that we have made. Uh, they're issues that the Bible makes quite explicitly clear that we are open to, to do um, either way on. Uh, so we both kind of um, uh, bent our rules for the afternoon. Uh, Nicole put on a big smile and uh, swallowed down the chicken soup and I, uh, I put my head back and poured down a glass of very bad Greek wine. <laughs> now, I'm, uh, for a tea date, I'm not much of a judge of wine, but I know that this was not good wine. <laughs> and uh, we had a great conversation about the gospel. Now, I guess that's kind of um, uh, a cutesy uh, sort of situation that doesn't happen all the time uh, and it doesn't usually happen quite that neatly either. But for us, uh, it's, it's, stuck in our, it's stuck in my memory for a long time, actually. Uh, and it helped us to remember that in everything, all the time, in all our relationships, our own culture, our own tastes, our own preferences, our own habits, are much less important, much less important, than the cause of others hearing about and coming to faith in Jesus. And when we let ourselves get so inflexible about those kind of issues like style and habit and preference and culture, that those things actually become more important to us than other people hearing the gospel. 
When that happens, we have turned our own habits and preferences into gods that we worship. When you know the gospel, uh, it is a knowledge that sets you free. It sets you free from the foolishness and the fear and the superstition of religion. It sets you free from the treadmill of thinking that you have to earn your way into God's acceptance and keep your way by the sheer force of your own goodness in God's good books. When you come to understand the gospel of God's free and generous grace, it sets you free. It gives you a kind of confidence in approaching God that comes from the presence of the Spirit in your heart, assuring you that God is your Father, that you are welcome in His presence, that He loves you, and that you don't have to earn your way or keep your way by your own goodness into His presence. When you come to know the gospel, you come to know freedom. But when you come to know the gospel, it also puts you under an obligation. Paul writes, if I proclaim the gospel, this gives me no ground for boasting. This is not some great magnanimous gesture that I've done to tell others about Jesus. This gives me no ground for boasting, for an obligation is laid on me. The obligation is the, the obligation that comes just from knowing the gospel. And woe to me if I do not proclaim the gospel. When you know that kind of thing, when you know that kind of salvation... It places you, as it places me, under the obligation to live your life so that with all your energy, you are striving towards others finding the salvation that you have found so that other people will come to have the chance to hear what you have heard and be saved. Well, in the final verses of the chapter, Paul drives that point home. And he uses an illustration that paints a picture of the athletes uh, at the Greek Games the Olympics um, or uh, for the Corinthians uh, their games were called the Isthmian Games it was kind of a Corinth version of the Olympics Uh, and Paul writes uh, you can kind of picture it uh, quite easily verse 24 do you not know that in a race the runners all compete but only one receives the prize run in such a way that you may win it athletes exercise self-control in all things they do it they do it in order to receive a perishable wreath but we an imperishable one. So I do not run aimlessly, nor do I box as though beating the air, but I punish my body and enslave it, so that after proclaiming to others, I myself should not be disqualified. What's it not about? It's worth getting that clear first. In the first place, it is not about asceticism and self-hatred and mutilation of the body. If you take a few of the phrases that Paul uses in these verses and if you kind of lift them out of their context and out of the context of Paul's wider writings, you could kind of come away um, thinking that he's advocating that sort of thing. Uh, But Paul is very clear throughout his letters uh, that self-mutilation, punishing and hating your body is is not a way to make yourself close to God. Um, And as we'll see in a moment, the context of the argument here makes it very clear that that's not what he's talking about here either. Um, just asking a question, does someone who knows something about sound know how we can stop this feedback? No? Radio. In the absence of that, I'll just turn that as far away from me as possible. Is that the way to go? Yep. Fantastic. Okay. So let's get this straight. Firstly, Paul is not talking about hating your body and mutilating your body and hurting your body uh, as a kind of um, ascetic exercise. Secondly, this is not a passage that endorses the kind of double standard 
uh, that we sometimes apply between missionaries and ordinary Christians. You ever kind of grow up with that sort of mentality? Um, you know how it is. Missionaries, missionaries uh, are people who make sacrifices and uh, try to be flexible and uh, have to be culturally relevant to the people uh, who live in the, the country they've gone to. Um, they're missionaries, so they, they need to. Uh, and they wear second-hand clothes that we send them in barrels. Uh, and they make their tea out of second-hand tea bags that we've sent across to them in packages. Whereas ordinary Christians um, just live as we please and go to church on Sundays. It's the kind of double standard that I kind of grew up thinking as a kid. But no, Paul is not saying that this is some sort of strange mentality he's writing about here, that he has because he's a missionary, because he's had some kind of special call that's different from other Christians. He's not saying that the Corinthians should live their lives by some other philosophy. Now, he's writing in these chapters to encourage them and to encourage us to think about these things exactly the same way that he does. And so if you flip across to chapter 11, verse 1, as he concludes this section in chapter 8, chapter 9, chapter 10, as he sums up the whole section in 11.1, he says, Follow my example, therefore, as I follow the example of Christ. He's saying this is not some kind of unique missionary mindset. This is ordinary Christian mindset that he's writing about. This is you and me. And what is it about? Well, in the first place, it's about purposefulness. It's about emulating the athletes, Paul says, uh, in the way they set their sights on a goal, in the way they know what they are going for, and they direct all their energies towards that, towards that goal. Uh, you don't see the runners at the games kind of strolling their way around aimlessly up the track. Now they, they fix their eyes on where they're going and they head in a straight line. Uh, you don't see the boxers uh, just sort of doing random movements with their fists. They don't just beat the air. They know what they're hitting for and they hit hard at what they're aiming at. They focus on a purpose. Uh, they direct themselves toward a goal and they use all their energies and their efforts toward that end. If we're Christians, if you, if you are a Christian, then we need to know what the goal is that we live for. Uh, we need to be single-minded about that goal. What is that goal? Paul says, verse 23, he lives for the sake of the gospel. He lives to see the name of Jesus proclaimed to all kinds of people in all parts of the world. He lives to share, he says, to share in the blessing of seeing more and more people experience the salvation that is in Jesus. That's the goal. And so we bend our efforts toward that purpose and we, we pour our energies into the achievement of that task because we know how worthwhile it is. We know what we have found in Jesus. And so we live not aimlessly, not pursuing some other kind of dream that our culture tries to sell to us, not just living for the status quo, not just kind of meandering through life, drifting from job to job and course to course. And, but instead, we live our lives with all our efforts and prayers and energies really in the end revolving around that one purpose. Paul says, be purposeful, be single-minded, live for the sake of the gospel. It's about purposefulness. And in the second place, Paul says, um, he writes uh, about self-denial. Not the self-denial of the ascetic, uh, not self-denial for its own sake, uh, not the kind of mindset that thinks that uh, if we suffer and inflict pain on ourselves, that will make us closer to God. Not the kind of self-punishment uh, that revolves around hitting yourself with a stick over the back or something to make yourself feel more spiritual. 
No, he's writing here about purposeful self-denial. The self-denial of an athlete who's prepared to suffer pain and do without for the sake of reaching the goal. The self-denial of the missionary who is prepared to punish their body by putting it through the punishing regimes of taking themselves to places that is not comfortable, of working hard, of long hours of hard work and toil uh, for the sake of the purpose that they live for. The self-denial of a disciple who is prepared to put Jesus and the gospel before anything else. And so it is a punishing kind of lifestyle. It will hurt you and cost you. Not because you think that pain is something you enjoy, but because you live for something that matters more to you than anything else. And so you make your choices in life, the big choices and the small, not by asking the question, what will be most comfortable for me? Not by asking the question, what will advance my cause in this world the most? Not by asking the question, what will be easiest? Not by asking the question, what do other people around me do? Not by asking the question, what will shield me and shelter me from pain? But instead by asking, what can I do to serve the cause of the Lord Jesus and of his gospel? And if that means it hurts us, then we say it is worth it. It's worth it a thousand times for the sake of just one other person finding salvation in Jesus. If you're not yet a Christian and you're here today, then you need to count the cost of that before you make a decision to follow Jesus. Jesus said to the great crowds who gathered to hear him as he preached, if anyone wants to come after me, then they must deny themselves and take up their cross daily and follow me. If you're not a Christian yet and you're deciding whether you will become one or not, then realise, like you realise nothing else, realise this, that you are not just picking a religion here. You're not just choosing a kind of an extra lifestyle habit to tack onto your life on Sundays. You're not just choosing a, a new philosophy to, to subscribe to. If you are choosing to become a Christian, then you are choosing to walk in the steps of Jesus. And walking in the steps of Jesus will mean it will cost you in time and money and energy and pain and tears for the rest of your life. It may cost you your life because you are following Jesus and taking up your cross in his steps. For those of us who are Christians, we need to feel the sharpness of the difference between this way of life, this way of life of Jesus, and the way of life that we were brought up to think of as normal, don't we? It's a pretty foreign mindset that Paul is writing about here. It's a pretty foreign mindset uh, to live your life laying aside your rights, laying aside your comfort, denying yourself again and again in, in big ways and small uh, for the sake of that one purpose. It's a pretty foreign mindset to the culture around... It's a pretty foreign mindset to the Christian culture that I was brought up in too, the kind of churches uh, that I've gone to most of my life. And we need to pray that in our time, in our generation, in our churches, in our own lives, that that mindset will become ours too and that we'll consistently live our lives that are kind of parables of what we believe and that we will follow purposefully in the steps of Jesus. Will you pray with me that God will do that work in our hearts? Father, we know uh, all too well that without 
your help, uh, without the work of your spirit, uh, we can't even want what is good, uh, let alone do it. And so we pray for your help, uh, for the work of your Holy Spirit in your hearts, uh, first of all, just to make us want these things uh, sincerely with all, with all of our hearts. Father, please change the desires of our hearts. Uh, take away the, the selfish and the complacent and the self-indulgent desires uh, that we, we drink in from the world around us. Uh, take away the desire to live for our own freedom and happiness in the present and uh, short-term pleasure and comfort and safety. Please, Father, um, give us genuine desires, not just to talk about sacrifice, um, but to live it out, to be prepared to pay a cost in our lives. Father, we, we pray for that mindset as we make the big decisions of our lives, um, as we think of the work that we will do, the place that we will live, um, all those kind of decisions that seem so large. We pray that uh, we would not just follow the the tracks laid down to us by our culture, but that we would deviate from those and follow the Lord Jesus. Please help us to weigh up the cost of those decisions and to make them wisely and sacrificially. And Father, we pray too that you would give us this heart as we think about the little thousand little decisions that make up each day. Uh, Father, in, in the decisions that we make about just how we use our time, our energy, our money, um, in all these things, that you would teach us the flexibility and the self-sacrifice, the self-denial um, that Paul writes about here. Um, please help us more than anything else to long for others to find Jesus and help us um, to live toward that goal. And Father, as you change us, we pray that you would change the culture of uh, Christianity in our day. Um, we know it's a, a big request, Father, but we know how great you are uh, how much you can do. Uh, we pray that you would change the culture of our churches, uh, we pray that you would change the culture of EU. We pray that you would change the culture um, of the whole um, of, of Christianity in our generation. And most of all, though, we pray that you would work in our own hearts and make us more like Jesus. Please, Father, do what it takes um, to cut down our pride and our selfishness and to save us from self-protection, uh, to give us the sort of attitude that Paul writes of here because we long to see others saved. And in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thanks, Dave. And I'd encourage you to uh, keep on having conversations about what that, what that sacrifice might look like over afternoon tea as we met outside. Um, before you leave, I have three quick, quick announcements. First one is that next week we'll be meeting downstairs, um, so no longer in this room, but downstairs in the main auditorium area. Um, the second one thing is that uh, you would have received a comment card within your um, little handout. Uh, if you're new here or have been here for just a couple of times, um, it'd be great to fill that out. Um, Dave's also here if you'd like to talk to him afterwards. Um, it's free to chat. And the final thing is that if you have uh, said to Mike McLean that you'd go and visit a, your old school or someone else's school, and then he'll be waiting down the front. He's got some brochures and various other things to give you. Uh, but until then, I'll meet you and see you all at their afternoon tea just down the stairs.